0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. And we've got three guests this week instead of two. Uh, we've got Chef Christian Arabian who is with us remotely from a studio in Richmond, but is a chef and a restaurant tour in our Washington, D.C. area and has been in California. It's really kind of coast to coast. We've got Ali Nurani with us from the National Immigration Forum, the executive director there since 2008, and has a podcast of his own called Only in America, which is pretty popular, which I got to listen to in preparation for this one, and is also the author of There Goes the Neighborhood. I love the title, There Goes the Neighborhood, How We Overcame Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Ali, thanks for being with us. No, thank you. And a colleague of mine, Meredith Jorce is here. Meredith used to work at the National Immigration Forum with Ali. Now she works the chair strength on the No Kid Hungry campaign. By the time the podcast is over, she's going to tell us who she'd like working for better. No, you're not going to do that, but we're really glad you're here, Meredith. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us. This is terrific. Christian, since you're not at the table here, I want to start with you and make sure we get some of your story. And I know you're uh, an immigrant from Mexico, and one of the things we want to talk about today, given the expertise at this table, is immigration and the culinary community and how we talk about issues that tend to get talked about in the wrong way in this country. At least least, uh, they tend to get talked about in polarizing ways and not in the substantive ways that could really advance the issue. But so many of our listeners are foodies who care about food and who love chefs and want to know how chefs got to be doing what they're doing. So I wanted to start by hearing that from you, Christian.
1: Sure. Sure, sure. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be part of this conversation. A little bit about me. Um, yes, originally from Mexico, born and raised uh, from Chihuahua. And from Chihuahua, uh, which is about four hours south of the El Paso, Texas border, we eventually moved to El Paso, Texas. And I grew up right right in the, in the southwestern border. Eventually, after high school, went in to pursue a business administration degree, which led me to Washington, D.C., where I worked for the International Monetary Fund for about eight years before realizing that I wanted to be doing something more hands-on. I grew up with my family owning restaurants, definitely not restaurants like we know them now to be, these big sovereign entities. Uh, There were small neighborhood eateries where I grew up washing dishes, bussing tables, peeling shrimp for hours on end, never really giving it a second thought that that was just something that could potentially be... A way of life. Eventually, when I started getting sort of back into food, I started taking culinary courses, and um, I had been meeting a lot of chef friends in the D.C. area that led me to staging through a million different kitchens and eventually made that transition to go Um, full-time. I was super lucky to land in some of the best kitchens and work with some super talented chefs and have made so many amazing longtime friends through some of these kitchens. And yeah, currently, uh, we are working on pursuing our own restaurant that is sort of, uh, we're still in the fundraising process. That's, That's sort of where I'm at.
0: Christian, how old were you when you came to the U.S.?
1: I am 40 years old now. So when we first got here, it was 1990. So I was about 10 years old.
0: Okay. And then how old were you when you really started cooking professionally?
1: Cooking professionally, we're looking at 13 years now. So
0: counting back from 13. Okay, got it, got it, got it. I read that somewhere where you described Chihuahua as being not what most people, at least not what I would have expected, you described Chinese influence and Jewish influence and Italian influences. I think you said it was a real melting pot and that that um, shaped some of your kind of culinary talents.
1: Yeah, yes, yes. So um, I think, like most of Mexico, not I don't think Chihuahua itself is very insular in this way, but Chihuahua, like a lot of the world, uh, has had people from everywhere coming in, starting from when, you know, Spain and France tried to colonize the land, and with that came other traders and uh, people coming in. We had a lot of, you know, when they were laying down the American Railroad, there was a lot of Chinese immigrants and the galleons coming from the Philippines. And so there's there's definitely a lot of different nationalities and ethnicities that live within Mexico that are not necessarily talked about, because I think it's just sort of human nature to try to pigeonhole things into small, digestible, pill-sized things. So we just, generally speaking, when we talk about us working on a Mexican restaurant, people, the immediate thing is like, I love burritos, I love tacos, and that's sort of like all-encompassing. But in reality, um, I mean, we did have, you know, we did have, we lived next to a synagogue, so we had Jewish neighbors. We had a beautiful restaurant called Shangri-La, which was a Chinese family that lived in town, and they cooked Chinese food, but very heavily influenced by the ingredients that uh, were available in Chihuahua. Uh, which was very, very interesting, to then leave Chihuahua and come to the United States and try General Tso's chicken for the first time, which was very, very different from what I knew Chinese food to be.
0: There are a number of reasons we're we're excited to have you on Ad Passion and Stir Christian, and one of them is that you're involved in some pretty interesting organizations uh, working, I think, in a space very similar to the space that uh, Ali Narani works in. I'm going to come back to you in in a moment to talk about Lucucina, Virginia, uh, Tables Without Borders, other work that you're doing that is kind of at the intersection of food and bilingual culinary training. But uh, let me get Ellie into this conversation, because Ellie, as near as I can tell, you're doing something that almost nobody in the immigration discussion does. At least I haven't seen it. I'm not the expert that you are. But you're actually... trying to uh, reach out to people that may not necessarily agree with you and bring them in closer to try to really get an understanding of different points of view so much of not just the immigration conversation but all of our political conversations in this country Are about making sure that your voice in the echo chamber is loud, and that everybody that resonates with all the people that you agree with, and that agree with you, and you seem to be doing something different. Tell us a little bit about how you came to the National Immigration Forum in the first place. I know that you're the child of Pakistani parents and born in the U.S. Uh, What's been your career path? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, thank
2: you very, very much for for having me today. We really, really admire the work that you all do. I think that you know, addressing hunger, addressing family the way that the organization does is just so incredibly important. So thank you. So I started the forum in 2008. The National Immigration Forum itself has been around since 1982. Our mission is to advocate for the value of immigrants and immigration to the nation. Back in 2010, just to kind of jump over you know, 30 odd years of, of history uh, for the organization. But in 2010, there was a really critical moment for the nation and what it means for us as a country when it comes to immigration. Because it was in December of 2010, the DREAM Act was defeated. And the DREAM Act is legislation that would provide legal status and work authorization, and eventually citizenship for young people. And we thought it would be the most popular piece of legislation that you that would get bipartisan support and we would see it signed into law. Instead, it was defeated. It was at that point where we decided that we were just going to do something different. So we broke away from the pack, if you will. And I don't mean that in a dismissive fashion because I think that there's some incredible work that is happening and needs, continues to, needs to continue to happen within the traditional immigrant rights space of protecting immigrants, of advocating from our progressive perspective. But we decided at that point that we were going to engage conservative and moderate faith law enforcement business leaders in the Southeast, the Midwest, and the Mountain West to really try to broaden not just the conversation around immigrants and immigration, but to broaden the set of allies that we can all point to when it comes to immigrants and immigration. And it's been a really, really fascinating journey. And, you know, I gotta say that whether it's current staff or former staff that's you know, one of them is sitting here as well, we just have an incredible group of people who are playing a leadership role every single day in, in their respective functions. Let me take you ask you
0: to go back sure. a, a little bit farther even. How did you come to uh, this I, issue? I know you yeah. had a background in public health and you are working in community health centers in, mm-hmm. the, in the Boston area. Why did you decide to make this your issue and, and where did it start?
2: So I was working for two health centers in Dorchester, Mass, uh, which is the largest neighborhood in in the city of Boston. One health center was in Codman Square. The other was about a mile down Dorchester Ave in Fields Corner. And if you walk from Codman Square to the Dorchester Ave to so Long Dot Ave, you are literally walking around the world you start in a a neighborhood that is by and large african-american and haitian then you keep going you know you live in boston right you start in the african-american haitian community you go through a white community that's been there for generations. You go through an Irish community, you go through a Central American community, and in Fields Corner, it's community teeming uh, with the vibrancy of a Vietnamese community. And I just realized at that point that I was working in a just a ri- such a rich neighborhood and with such a remarkable set of people that I needed to, and I began to understand how. Fundamentally broken, the immigration system was then and continues to be now.
0: You talked about the Dream Act being defeated in 2010. Why was it defeated? I, I know for so many people that we were working with at the time that that really was a devastating moment. That was a pivotal moment, as you described for yourself. Why 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 did it go down?
2: You know, it, it's it's and I haven't thought about it this way yet, but it's kind of similar to the moment that we are in now today in politics, in that. Our politics today are so deeply partisan in ways that they were deeply partisan in 2010. So in 2010, in the run up to that dream act, that lame duck dream act vote in December, you know, we as kind of our part of the movement, we ran a progressive political strategy. We registered voters, we turned them out. We made the case to policymakers in the press that there was a Latino firewall that kept Democrats control the Senate because of Senator Reid and Senator Bennett in Nevada and Colorado respectively winning their seats. The fact is that a political strategy didn't win, didn't address this issue, because when it comes to an issue like immigration, most Americans do not see it as an issue about politics and policy. They see it as an issue about culture and values. That's why the work that Christian does every single day, bringing food and cuisine and culture to Americans who... You know, sure, they may want to go get a you know, a burrito, but they're being introduced to a completely different definition of what Mexican food is, what cuisine is. And that over time begins to open people's minds of this is who we are becoming as
0: a country. You know what? That's a good thing. Well, Christian, speak to that a little bit, because I, you're not only doing that as a as a chef and as somebody who cooks and is serving meals, but you're doing it through organizations like La Cucina, Virginia, which talks about using the power of food to create socioeconomic change. How have you seen the role as chef as one that enables you to actually work with people who may not be in the industry, but have an opportunity to kind of get into society through the industry?
1: One of the main points or ideas behind me trying to open a restaurant and create a platform for myself beyond telling my story or putting what my culture is on on, the, on a plate in front of people is figuring out ways that we can assist or affect positive change in uh, local Latin American communities, which literally make probably about 80% of back of the house and some of the front of the house operations throughout the district and quite possibly like all throughout the country. I've been lucky enough that in coming up in kitchens, I spent a lot of time working with Chef Jose Andres at Oymel right in Penn Quarter, where in other kitchens, I think I learned a lot of technique. Uh, working in for Think Food Group and Chef Jose, I learned more on how to be a human being while working in a kitchen. Through his work with World Central Kitchen was, uh, which I've been around since the original Puerto Rico visit and now what it's blown up to be is super, super inspiring. To be able to work with La Cocina eventually too, which provided an opportunity for me that I don't think I'd ever, I I think coming up as a chef wanting to help out and volunteer is something that a lot of us have. But when you're working restaurant hours, it becomes very difficult when you're pulling, you know, 80 hours a week. You're one day off trying to compartmentalize where you're going to spend that time becomes a little difficult so when the opportunity with Ecosina opened up for um, structuring this program, I jumped on it immediately where I could use my skills, but also, you know, do the do the thing that I wanted to do all along, which was use those skills to do good.
0: And tell us how Ecosina works and how, how does it make a difference in people's lives?
1: Ecosina is an incredible program. It's It, it's, it has many moving wheels. So it starts with it's an eight-week. It's not a culinary class as we see it in culinary schools. It's more of a back-of-the-house training class, where we take a group of people. When we started, uh, we were focusing on Latin American immigrant women. The program has now grown, and they're working with different sections of different immigrant communities. So we were offering the. The classes were taught in Spanish. Um, most of the most of the people that we were bringing in were either did not speak any English at all or were just learning the idea was to provide an opportunity for people to be able to jump into the hospitality industry beyond just showing up at a door not knowing english and then getting stuck peeling peeling onions for 6 years down the line never really having the ability to increase their their pay or their skill set or their you know work or career so we would take uh, a group of 10 they would come in for about 8 hours a day uh, they would get back-of-the-house training, which was with me in the kitchen, uh, some theory. We would do life skill classes where they would get to unpack a plethora of different issues that we would see from people coming in and the reasons uh, they, they were in the United States and how they got here, and the stories are varied, and some are very, very sad. So we would provide that. We would also provide um safe training, which would be lead them to be able to get Department of Health certification to work in a kitchen, Uh, They would get vocational ESL classes so that they could get familiar with terminology uh, when they walked into a kitchen and chef asked them for either measurements or equipment or whatever. So they would be able to have a leg up on what they were doing. Then once the course is finished, then they would get career placement and then or job placement and then career follow-up where we would assist uh, with their, with their career development for up to a year and then beyond if they chose to stay with it. That's, that was the main goal. the main goal was to, open up a path for people to affect positive change in their economy, but also to make sure that they were integral parts of their community. And then on the other end was um, trying to figure out how to use food to teach that. So we started working with a lot of different programs, whether it was farms, a lot of restaurants. uh, The Think Food Group restaurants were an integral part uh, through the beginning And seeing places like D.C. Central Kitchen and World Central Kitchen and the models that they were using to uh, not just get people handouts of food when they were in need, but rather involve them in the process, give them a skill set, and then have them be sustainable on their own we would then work with this food, use, them, use the food to teach people how to cook. And then towards the end of every single day, we would, through the class and with that food, we would push out about 100, 150 individual meals that then would get delivered to the community. So none of the food was really being wasted. And we were salvaging a lot of food that would potentially be trashed otherwise.
0: Christian, I'm sure there's a lot of success stories that come out of this. Are there any particular stories that jump out at you or that are particularly memorable in terms of an individual who'd been through the program or somebody that you'd worked with closely?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, every class we would see, we would see uh, rising stars. But top of mind right now, because we're doing work with Tables Without Borders, and we're hoping to be doing um, a couple of events at soon. We One of my last courses, I worked with a girl from El Salvador named Maria del Carmen, who came here through a Catholic program. And I believe she was just super young when she got here through some serious, serious hardships. Started the La Cocina program. She was part of my class. Super Super smart girl, uh, always asking questions, always wanting to be involved, would come in early, would leave late, would want to be involved in whatever way possible after she graduated, you know we kept in touch with her through the program and then about a year later, after not really hearing from anyone really, I linked up with Tables Without Borders and they were working on an event, and she was part of Tables Without Borders, and we sort of linked up again. And super happy to find out that she's been, you know, leading leading her her team in in a hotel uh, in D.C., and she's doing really, really great. And she's getting involved in all kinds of different programs to help her excel her, her skill set and her career.
0: Wow, fantastic. I, I love hearing that. You know, uh, at Share Strength, we have so many examples in our organization is built on the fact that chefs and culinary professionals want to give back to the community. There's so many ways that they do it. Meredith Jorce, who's in our communications office and who's here with us today, is in charge of something that we've got coming up called Lobby Day. I don't know if that's the most elegant name for it, but it it, it says what it is, which is, well, I'm going to let you describe it, Meredith, since you've been putting it together. And it does have a big impact on getting chefs involved in public policy and advocacy.
3: Yeah. Chefs are such important voices in our work at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And, you know, traditionally chefs have been involved in fundraising efforts for the organization. And, you know, it's getting involved in advocacy work is a great way for them to, you know, stretch their skills and and interests in in new ways. And it's deeply powerful, deeply effective beyond, you know, the notion of a celebrity chefs, uh, a chef. Chefs are, you know, they are important people in their communities. They are employers. They care deeply about their communities. And so they are really important voices with legislators and can really speak authentically to the issue. And to that end, you know, they can be really effective at uh, helping us get our message across when we're talking about legislation on the state or federal level that can move the needle for child and hunger. So what will
0: actually happen on lobby day?
3: Yeah, we'll bring together a group of chefs. And And when is it? May 13th okay. We'll bring together a group of chefs from across the nation to meet with lawmakers on Capitol Hill to talk specifically about uh, a program that could increase the number of kids who are accessing summer meals um, when school is out.
0: And how many chefs do you anticipate we'll have?
3: I think we'll have anywhere between 10 to 20 chefs here. And do we have
0: room for more if somebody's listening right now and uh, they want to get involved?
3: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Meredith Jorris, the chair Strength, our No Kid Hungry campaign. Ellie, as, as we're talking about this, you've got the expertise in bringing more voices to the table. You talk about making sure that every voice is heard, creating allies where there haven't been. What are the strategies or the tactics for doing that. When I first started the conversation, I said, I I really feel like you're doing something that nobody else is doing. You must have developed some particular methodology.
2: Well, it always all begins with one thing, and that's a good meal. If you have crappy food, that makes (laughs) for a lousy meeting. (laughs) Um, But more more than anything, it's really a matter of being able to sit down with someone and understand what are the fears that they bring to the conversation, what are the aspirations they bring to the conversation, and what are the values that they bring to a conversation, particularly when you are talking about something like immigration. Through our work, we've come to believe that most Americans have three fears when it comes to immigration. Those fears cut across culture, security, and the economy. Culturally, the question that most people have are, are immigrants and refugees, are they integrating and isolating? From a security perspective, are immigrants and refugees, are they threats or protectors and finally question is are they uh, givers or takers it's very easy for us to you know hear those questions and dismiss them but on the other hand if you hear those questions you sit with them and you really try to understand where those fears come from then you can actually have a conversation of okay what is the what is the information somebody needs to begin to think about the issue differently? What is the information somebody needs, or the experience that somebody needs to have, before they start to act or behave differently when it when presented with a question around immigrants and immigration? So, we often try to answer these questions whether it's through communications work or through our partnerships with you know pastors, police chiefs, CEOs. And I would also say that you know for us, a chef is a CEO. A chef is not only a person who is making a meal, an amazing meal. A chef is a person who is opening a small business. They're running a business. You know, building a business, hiring people, putting not just food on the table, but, you know, payroll in somebody, or a check in somebody's pocket. So sometimes I think we, you know, we have a tendency to kind of overlook that type, that incredible value that chefs as CEOs offer to the to society.
0: And when you talk about putting together these conversations, do you bring a point of view to the conversation or are you simply facilitating the conversation, and how do you decide who needs to be in the conversation?
2: Sure. So, I mean, abs- absolutely. You know, we're an advocacy organization, so ultimately, we're advocating for fair and just immigration policies that balance the idea that we, as a country, can be a nation of laws and a nation of grace. And you know, there's a bunch of policy details underneath all of those. The, underneath that statement, so how we have those conversations kind of a range of tactics that we can deploy. You know, we'll do living room conversations in suburban and rural communities across the country. We will do, create digital spaces where, whether it's a pastor or a congregant, they're able to get their, answers, their questions answered. We'll pull together meetings and events with police chiefs and sheriffs in rural parts of Iowa. So there are a lot of, there are different ways to set up those conversations, but we're always trying to bring people into the room who have questions and who want to have an honest conversation about a really complicated
0: problem and then how do you define what success is from a conversation like that, or from your work? I mean, look, it's been a great three years in the immigration space, so
2: much winning. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, for us, everything that we do, is we're gonna try to measure, right? We're gonna, and we go through your standard kind of like metrics of engagement and kind of dissemination, yep. et cetera. But, you know, I'll give you an example. There is a, there's a, a particular campaign um, where we're really trying to engage the faith community. And uh, the leader of this campaign was speaking at a church in suburban Dallas. She speaks and a woman walks up to her afterwards and says, you know what? I heard about your campaign through my Facebook feed. I drove an hour to come here to hear you speak based on the information you were putting on, uh, onto the internet. I read everything. I watched all the videos. You began to answer my questions. I then, with two of my girlfriends, we went to the border on a trip to quote, see it for our own eyes, see it for ourselves. Now, I want you to come to our church in suburban Dallas and speak to our congregation. So for us, you know, that is a huge success. That's a big one. Right. Because this is a person who had honest questions and fears about immigration, but we were able to understand her values, understand how she, the information she needed to hear. And, you know, we met her where she is, but we didn't leave her there.
0: Well, I, uh, speaking of the border, I had lunch in Boston last Thursday with Sister Norma Pimentel, yep. who is who uh, runs the Catholic Charities Respite Center on the border. And there was a group from UNICEF that had hosted her in Boston. And we were talking, and she'd written a, a Washington Post op-ed, and she quoted Pope Francis as saying, one of our greatest obligations is to counter to counter the globalization of indifference. And, you know, the thing that troubles me in this debate probably more than anything is not so much the people that are wrong minded or mean spirited, as troubling as that is, but just how much indifference there is among so many other people to what's going on. You know, any one of us takes a trip to the border and we come back and we say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to work on this every day for the rest of our life because it's that compelling. And then, you know, real life settles in and you kind of go back to your normal routine. Uh, I'm really interested for all three of you, how do you think about this issue of what each of us and our organizations can be doing to counter this globalization of indifference? To get more people engaged, to empower people to feel like they can make a difference on this issue. Let me start with you, Ellie.
2: A couple of weeks ago, I was in El Paso. So, Christian, when you when you mentioned El Paso, I immediately remembered the lunch that I had at Tacos Cuco. Have you been there? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back in two weeks, ostensibly for work, but between you and me, I'm just going back for the tacos. (laughs) But I'm reflecting on this trip over the weekend, and I go back to a pastoral letter that Bishop Seitz of El Paso wrote. And he wrote it in, I wanna say, October of last year, a couple of months after the massacre of the Walmart in El Paso. And he wrote something that I thought was so incredibly powerful, because it was about more than indifference, it was about seeing the worth that people have, the dignity that people have, regardless of kind of where they are coming to Where's that coming from on the issue? And there's one particular passage that he wrote where he says, you know, he's speaking to, you know, the migrant family and he says, You're, you have worth. You are worth. The mixed status family, you are worth. But then he wrote something that was really, 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 I think, important. He said, to the border patrol officer who believed that they were signing up for a job that was just and good, and now you struggle explaining what you do you are worth. And when you go to El Paso, it, you know, Christian, I, like every time I go to El Paso, you know, you it's hard to see where El Paso stops and where Juarez begins. It's, it's one just, community. It's right? just it's it a really beautiful is. place. So, you know, going on that trip and then reading what the bishop wrote uh, has kind of stuck
0: with me. And where did the bishop write this? Because you've got me wanting to track it down now.
2: I found it. it's on the Border Hope Institute uh, website. They do a lot of work along the border in terms of helping communities understand issues in the courts, in the detention centers, in Juarez. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very kind of Catholic-oriented right. organization.
0: Well, Meredith, we have to track it down. And, you know, as Ellie's talking about your worth, to me that resonates so strongly with the whole message of Share Our Strength, which is everyone's got a strength to share, right? Everybody's got something mm-hmm. to give. So you might talk in some ways about how we kind of try to counter this you know, notion of indifference. How do how do we get people yeah. engaged?
3: I think it's about education and, and opportunity. So first really showing the the breadth and scope of the issue and really making people understand that it's in their own community. It's ever it's in their classroom, it's, you know, their neighbor, whatever the issue is. It's it it impacts every community. And so painting that picture for them and and getting that point across and then giving them the opportunity to share their strength, to create these moments for them to be inspired and then to use their voice for change and to to do that by sharing whatever their strength might be.
0: And Christian, you're doing this in the community. You mentioned last time you spoke about Tables Without Borders. We need to know more about what that is.
1: Tables Without Borders is a very young organization who is working with international immigrant refugees that are in the Washington, D.C. area that are showing interest into getting into the culinary field. So what they're doing is they are bringing them in and trying to pair them with other chefs to get them into kitchens, get them working, get them the skills that they need to operate in, in an American kitchen. With that, they also do bigger events where they're able to showcase the chef's ability. So one last event that we did was working with Mariela Carmen, she was able to basically write a menu showcasing the food of El Salvador, which is outside of Fupusas in the D.C. area, it's very hard to really pinpoint what El Salvadorian cuisine looks like. So what we did is she sat down with me, we developed a menu, we came up with all the recipes, and then linked her up with a restaurant that would then work as a platform for her to serve her food in a restaurant setting. So we worked with Espita, which is a beautiful Mexican restaurant right in Shaw. She worked with the chef team there. They developed all of the recipes, they developed the plating, they created the menu, and for an entire weekend, she was basically able to run her Salvadorian menu and sell it to anyone and everyone that came in along with the Espito menu, which was not only super great for the public to be able to see what you know food is outside of the pupusa scenario, but also super empowering for her to see that not only is she able to have a job in a kitchen, but rather that there is a career in doing this and to be able to see her food presented in ways that she had never seen it before working with world-class chefs and learning new techniques was super huge for her. So it's, empowering in the professional life, but also empowering for her to continue doing events like this to keep showcasing what she can actually do.
0: That's a, a great example. You had spoken earlier, Christian, about when you were cooking, I think you said something about putting my culture on a plate. When you put your culture on a plate, what does it look like?
1: Oh, every, everything. It probably looks like a lot like what people are not expecting. You know, we were talking about the Different cultural influences that are baked in and ingrained into Mexican communities all throughout the republic, and the food that I grew up with. While, of course, we had tortillas and of course we had tacos. When we ate at home, my grandmother wasn't plating individual tacos for everybody. Right? It was it meant there was a pot of a, a stew in the middle of the table with another pot of beans, another pot of rice, and a giant stack of tortillas. And you know, everybody sort of you know figured out how to eat that, whether it was a taco or otherwise. But we ate all kinds of things. Uh, my grandfather uh, coming from Yucatan and my grandmother being from Veracruz, we ate a lot of seafood. So there was tons of seafood on the table. We ate tons of pasta. One of the one of the biggest dishes that we do when people like kind of look at us weirdly is a pasta dish. So we're basically rolling out fresh dough every day. We're doing anolotis and we're stuffing them with beautiful goat cheese and with coche, which is a mushroom that grows on corn. Uh, with a very, very particular flavor. So it's very unexpected for people to come into a Mexican restaurant and get a pasta, course. At the same time, we're n- we're not plating tacos. And that's also another point of conversation when people ask us, oh, my God, we love tacos. We have to explain to them that we don't sell tacos because we're not a taqueria. But you will be able to get, you know, you're going to get your stew, you're going to get your beans, and you're going to get a hot stack of tortillas. And it's really a point of conversation that we're hoping people are able to be more Mindful when they're sitting down at the table rather than transactional, they're able to, you know, see the food, talk about the food, smell it, try to figure out how to build a taco or what a taco is and create more of a communal and community sense in on the table beyond just sort of like we're going to sit down, we're going to eat, we're going to pay and we're going to go.
0: Is anybody else getting really hungry from I, this conversation? I was just okay. going to say. We're yeah. recording this late in the afternoon on <laughs> yeah. a Tuesday afternoon, and it's really, uh, it's really not, stirring no. up my, not my cool. appetite. <laughs> you know, Ellie, I'm going to ask the question yeah. my, I know my sister would ask if she were here, and I think this goes right to the heart of your work. And her question, which she she's asked guests before on the show, has to do with the way we've talked about a whole lot of political issues over the last two to three years, but particularly the immigration issue. And she always asks, you know, are we gonna be able to put the poison back in the bottle? You know, we've unleashed a certain type of language, we've unleashed a culture of demonizing people that disagree with us. Are, are we, what would it take to, to, to put that poison back in the bottle, or is that something we've gotta live with for a while?
2: I, I don't think we have a choice but to put it back in the bottle. You know, the, the piece of data that I am, that kind of keeps me up at night is that when you look out to 2040, which in reality is not that far away, um, you're gonna have 70% of the population living in 15 states. That means about 30% of the population is gonna be looking, living in uh, 35 states. So we could, if we don't figure out how we you know, get the national discourse back on the rails in the next 20 years, come 2040, we're going to look back at 2020 and say, oh, those are the nice old days, right? Those are the good old days. And I I, I really do think that that means that we have all got to uh, recalibrate the ways that we are talking about culture, the way that we are understanding what it means to be an American, who gets to define what it means to be an American. And I think we just have to come to terms with the idea that we're all gonna have different definitions. So, you know, I I mentioned these living room, I think I mentioned these living room conversations uh, that we've done in in suburban and rural communities across the country, and the first question we ask people is, how do you identify yourself? And what does it mean to be an American? And we found that if you can sit with somebody's answer, not question it, not kind of debate them, everything else becomes 10 times easier. Because, you know, the I think what, what we're seeing across the country is a a conflict that is a struggle for self preservation where we all feel like we and our identities are under attack by somebody. And we've got to hang on to what we've got. And we've got to hang out to what we've got. So and, and that leadership just doesn't come from we, we can no longer depend on, you know, Washington D C for that kind of moral or cultural leadership. That that leadership more and more I think begins in, you know, that restaurant on the corner, the church the school at a very, very local level.
0: Tell us a little bit about your book, There Goes the Neighborhood, Mm -hmm. uh, why you wrote it and what you've hoped it's accomplished.
2: So I started writing the book in probably early 2016 or late 2015, early 2016, and what I wanted to do was to try to sit down with the conservative and moderate leaders that we'd gotten to know over the years and get a better understanding of why they engaged. And I spent time sitting with probably 50 or 60 people over the course of the project and came to realize that, like I said earlier, immigration for most Americans, particularly conservative and moderate Americans, they don't see it as a question of politics and policy. They see it as a, as a discussion around culture and values. So whether it's from you know, the leader of the you know, Southern Baptist Convention public policy arm, a Republican attorney general in Indiana who took on Republican Governor Mike Pence on Syrian refugees in Indiana, or you know, Steve Case, the founder of AOL, you know, what are the similarities of kind of why they care about these, about immigrants and immigration? And what do we need to learn moving forward? And, you know, I, I think what, what we need to take, a, what we should take away, not just from the project, but from the work overall, is that we just have to do a better job of listening to each other. And then figuring out how do we translate that to policy change? And that's the hard part, particularly in this environment, is that, you know, we as an advocacy organization can do a gazillion living room conversations across the country, but until we get somebody to think differently about you know their member of Congress,
0: we haven't gotten there yet, and is it fair to say that a certain kind of leadership got us into this position, so a certain kind of leadership might be able to get us out i mean how how do we lift people to the point where they want to have the conversation mm-hmm. the way you've described it?
2: well, i mean i look I, I think that you know whether we are looking at the final nine months or the final four years and nine months of this administration, the challenges that we face as a country today are not gonna go away. And I think that they preceded the current administration. And look, we, we do most of our work with conservatives and Republicans, so I don't mean that in a partisan way. I think we've gotta understand that a lot of folks feel like they've been left out by the system, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in charge. So from a national perspective, I think candidates for office elected officials need to do a much better job of not polarizing an electorate as much as they are trying to reach across the aisle. So in 2018, um, we at the National Immigration Forum, we realized that, okay, we were talking to a very specific slice of the American public, and we thought it was an important slice of the American public. But we also realized that we needed to kind of Test our assumptions. So, we ended up partnering with an organization out of the United Kingdom called More in Common. Now, they've done really amazing work across Europe, in Italy, and in France, looking at polarization and the factors that drive polarization. And in early 2018, they were in the final stages of a, a massive a quantitative survey of the American public on these questions of polarization, and immigration was one of the factors that they were looking into. So we partnered with them in terms of organizing these living room conversations that we did in over two dozen communities across the country. But more importantly, what they found in their quantitative study was that they started to look at the American public as a series of tribes and in essence, seven tribes. Um, Those tribes, you know, in a traditional way, although they wouldn't necessarily kind of think about them this way, uh, would be kind of ranging from your far left to your far right. And what they saw was that, you know, your furthest left tribe was kind of set in their ways. They weren't gonna move. Your furthest two tribes to the right They were, you know, very traditional conservative or or kind of hard right wing, if you will. But it was those the number in the middle, which was the most interesting. And they came to call those tribes, those four tribes in the middle, the exhausted majority. Uh, And they found that that exhausted majority, which is about 67 percent of the American public, while they didn't agree on the policy solutions on an issue like immigration necessarily, they did agree that they were tired of the polarization, they were tired of the rhetoric, they were tired of the way that the political debate was going in the United States, and they wanted their elected members of Congress and elected policymakers to find a compromise. So for us, we saw that important research by More in Common said, and that's, we just realized, okay, those are the folks that we're talking to, and those are the folks that we need to move from Seeing the news go by on their screen about immigration, to wanting to learn more, to ultimately taking a constructive action. So I think that whether it's a politician or an advocate, we need to be focusing on that exhausted majority and trying to
0: find the policy consensus. And the exhausted majority, I imagine, is what it sounds like, and they're and they're hungry too. They all just want a good meal. Yeah, <laughs> Meredith, you know, so many of the people that we serve. Are at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign are really caught up in the immigration struggle. I was at a school in California recently where uh, there were, I think, 800 kids at the school and almost 90% of them were from families who had undocumented parents and weren't able to find really meaningful work. And therefore, we're trying to, you know, fill that breach with School meals, breakfast, things like that. Say a little bit about what the core work of the No Kid Hungry campaign is to try to reach some of these these underserved kids.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We at No Kid Hungry are really focused on the child nutrition programs that will feed kids at home, at school, and you know in the places where they play. So whether it's the SNAP program that helps families put uh, you know food in the pantry at home, school meals which which help supplement that and give kids the fuel to be able to sit through the, their class throughout the day and um, reach their full potential educationally, or through summer meals, which helps kids get the food that they need in the summertime when schools are closed and those meals are no longer available for breakfast and lunch. We're working with partners to make sure that, that kids have the access to these programs and that they are able to reach their full potential.
0: That's really the kind of the core of what the No Kid Hungry campaign yeah. is really about. Christian what else can the culinary community be doing? Can it be playing a bigger role? Are there many other chefs you think that have your set of life experiences that could be, you know, on the platform that you've developed for yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of chefs in the district and there's a ton of chefs that are interested in helping out. I think a lot of people and a lot of chefs sometimes don't necessarily know where to start, but I think step one for everybody is trying to figure out how to educate yourself better. And then through that, be able to educate your teams and and your peers. One of the biggest holdups that I found in a lot of different kitchens is the language barrier. Like uh, a lot of English speaking chefs with a lot of Spanish speaking workers, which makes it very difficult for them to communicate and teach further than simple tasks and makes it difficult for the for the workers to communicate with the chef and ask questions and and develop further. So I think working in restaurants where, you know, there's concerted effort to learn either maybe on both ends, uh, the English speakers learn some Spanish and work somehow to get your Spanish speaking staff to learn English or find a medium way to communicate to better develop your workers, there's anyone that is around the restaurant industry in D.C. knows that it is very difficult to find able staff. So to be able to turn the chef into not just a person that makes food, but a person that makes people and like really works with them and develops them and has the time and patience and ability to do so it would, would be enormous. But I think step one really is just sort of educating yourself and, and figuring out ways to uh, provide those resources for chefs around the district, which are very i think if if there are if they are out there they 're not necessarily very well communicated, so to get more people involved in in sharing those knowledge spaces would be super huge
0: and I think this really goes to what Ali was saying about this not being a political issue i mean you 're experiencing it in the industry as a cultural issue really
1: yeah, one thousand percent the people that are coming in are coming in from all over I think also being able to identify you know, where where they're coming from. I think we were talking about people coming in from, you know, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, all kinds of different places, and learning where they're coming from and what their backgrounds are to better understand how to communicate, because we don't all have like a universal one way of speaking and or being helps out too. I think a lot of times it's very easy to say, oh, they're Latin American, so they all must be the same. But to be able to Understand, you know, where everyone's coming from, what their stories are, what maybe their backgrounds are, uh, to better connect with them would be super helpful.
0: Ali, how do you how do you turn into such a good listener? Is that a learned skill? Is it uh, genetics? You don't talk too much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really the key to a lot of your work, though, right?
2: Right, and it's it's a matter of being able to sit with tension, not just sit with tension, but to to create tension in the conversation and then be able to work through that tension so that somebody can feel like they've been heard and that people feel like their questions have been answered. And I, I mean the trick here is to to for this work to reach scale you have to do that in a way where you're talking to a lot of people. Yeah. Again whether it's through a communication a traditional communication strategy or digital communications or even larger scale events and that's not always easy because I think as organizer as organizers you know, we're trained to, you know, script reality and try to get to a very, very defined outcome. But, you know, the most powerful moments that occur in an event or meeting or some sort of a, a communication strategies strategy are the ones that are unscripted or the ones that, you know, somebody asks a question or provides an answer where you just didn't expect it. And people like, huh, okay. I wasn't, I wasn't that's surprising, but it, it resonates
0: and to really be present. To that moment, yep. and so, and was there a, a mentor an influence for you that helped you get to this place?
2: That is a very good question, yeah. So, in my, my kind of first quote, real job out of grad school, was working for the city of Boston, and um, you know, I'd obviously I'd worked a bunch of different things up to that point. But this is the first time where I was like running a program, and um, it was in the environment department. It was a uh, Lorraine Downey, she worked at the city of Boston for like 20 25 years. She was just like quintessential Boston, had the Boston accent. She kind of, and she didn't really want me there. She was like, a lovely person. And we've turned, to, ended up being great friends. But I could tell, she was like, you know what? Somebody told me to put this program in my office and all right. So she pulls me into the conference room outside her office. She sits me down and she says, listen, I got one rule for you. If you're in a meeting and you don't know what's going on, and you don't know anything about it, shut up. <laughs> so, needless to say, I'm in a lot of meetings
0: where I don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good lesson for all of us. Yeah. In your work, you talked about how often people have something in common when it comes to the immigration conversation that they may not appreciate that they have in common. What are some examples of that, or what has surprised you? Have there been surprises where somebody's uh, you know kind of cast against type and has and has really mm-hmm. changed your view of you know the way you might have generalized about them. So, you know, kind of going back to the
2: the beginning of this approach for us, it was the spring of 2010. It was just after Arizona had passed the SB 1070 kind of show me your papers law. And, you know, the country was, you know, pretty deeply polarized around this issue almost as much as what you see today. The state of Utah was next on the list of proponents of SB 1070 to try to push a state to kind of take this law or pass this law. Utah, at that point, was the most conservative state in the country. We had an organizer on the ground in Utah who tells me about a story where five state workers in Utah sent local law enforcement and the attorney general's office a list of, I want to say, five or 10,000 people that they accused of being undocumented. In reality, these individuals just had Hispanic surnames they weren't, they weren't undocumented. So Carter calls me up and says, you know what, this is going to become a story. We should do a press conference. And let's say it's a Tuesday of a week of this week, right? It's okay, Carter, let's, let's do it. Right. And I said, who do you think you can get? And he said, well, I think I can get, you know, the state senator, conservative think tank, da da da, and the attorney general. I said, okay, let's do it. And or between Tuesday and Thursday, the story completely mushrooms. It is a huge story now. So it's a half hour from the press con- telephonic press conference. I'm moderating it. I finally get my act together, do a little research on who's on the press conference. One of them is Mark Shirtleff, who's the Attorney General. The last time Mark Shirtleff was in the press at a public, lo- at a national level, was tweeting from a death penalty execution, tweeting in favor of the of the of the death penalty. So in my head, I'm like, he's conservative, check. But I didn't know anything else about him, hmm. and I'm. Kind of terrified because I know this is going to be a pretty packed call. Get on the call. He knocks it out of the park, right? He is. We need comprehensive immigration reform. This is wrong. Da da da. And I remember this this moment like it was yesterday. A reporter from CNN asks him on the call, "You know, Attorney General, Mister Attorney General, what are you going to do?" And he says, "This list is not a blacklist. It's a hit list. And I'm going to do everything in my power to pursue these individuals who released this list." Right? And you hear this, and it's like. It was amazing, right?
0: And and, think of the message that sends. Right, right th- yeah. and,
2: and it was right then where I realized, you know what, there is a different way we can be doing this work. Because there are more people like Mark Shurtleff in Utah, in Arizona, you pick your conservative state, who don't like what they're seeing when it comes to immigration, and bring a set of values and perspectives that will resonate with a completely different, with a much needed set of the American public.
0: That is a hopeful note for us to draw to a close on. We've been talking with Ali Narani from the National Immigration Forum. He is the author of There Goes the Neighborhood, and he's got a great podcast which really digs deep into this immigration issue in every facet that you can imagine called Only in America. I recommend it. It's really fun and really appreciate you being with us, Ali. Thank you. For people who want to learn more about the National Immigration Forum website,
2: our website is immigrationforum.org. And it, you know, one other thing, we are thrilled to be partnering with uh, Tables Without Borders for. An event on May fifth in Washington D.C. Uh, to uh, the event is going to be called Stories Without Borders, and uh, we're hoping that Christian and a colleague will be there doing some cooking demonstrations for demonstrations for us. So May fifth, and
0: uh, the website is immigrationforum.org. org. Thanks, thanks for that shout out, and uh, Christian Arabian, we're hoping that you're going to have a restaurant here in the Washington area very soon. Anything you can tell us?
1: Well, we're we're not really allowed to talk about it, not very much in depth, but yeah, there's there's a a super secret project that was spawned off of our Amparo Fundita Endeavor. Uh, opportunity was created, and we're looking at the Chevy Chase neighborhood in D.C.
0: If we wait patiently, you'll be here and we can all come and have a good meal?
1: Yes, you have to be very, very patient.
0: Excellent. That's okay. We can do that. We can be patient and we can listen and we can be quiet until until we understand what we're doing, as Ellie said. And Meredith Jorce from Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for being this common bond between Ellie and, and myself. It's great to have you here.
3: Yeah, so excited that you guys got to talk. There's so much synergy in your work, and I've been hoping that you guys could get together for a chat soon. So very happy this happened. Well, thanks Thank for you. helping to
0: make it happen. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. We hope you'll um, not only share this podcast episode with uh, friends and others, but look at our archive. Go back and rate it, rank it, subscribe, and feel free to go to addpassionandstir.com to find all of our previous episodes. On behalf of the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, my sister, Debbie Shore, couldn't be with us. Kelly Griffin, who's always with us behind the scenes. And our producer, Paul Woody Whittle at District Productive. Uh, thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir.